Amen. All right, well, we're there in Luke chapter number 7, and like we've announced, we are back in our Encounters with Christ series, and what we are doing through this series is we're just being flies on the wall and kind of listening in on Jesus as he deals with people, as he interacts with people, and of course, uh, we are not focusing on parables and we're not focusing on, on miracles, we're just focusing on these in interactions, these encounters. In this story, we have a parable as part of that conversation, so we'll deal with it uh, there. But I want you to notice, this is a pretty well-known story in the Bible. Here in Luke 7, we've got this famous story of uh, Jesus in the house of Simon the Pharisee, and a sinful woman anoints his feet. If you look at uh, Luke chapter 7 and verse 36, the Bible says this, and one of the Pharisees desired him, talking about Jesus, that he would eat with him And he went into the Pharisee's house, and he sat down to meet. So notice this Pharisee invites Jesus to have a meal with him, and Jesus accepts the offer, and he has a meal with him, and this is where the the setting of this interaction. Now, just by way of introduction, let me uh, give you some thoughts in regards to this story. Uh, We find this story is is in Luke chapter 7, but in all the other Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, and John, there is another account of a very similar story of a woman washing and anointing Jesus' feet in the same way uh, as we find in this story. Now, there is some debate as to whether this story in Luke 7 is the same story as the story in Matthew 26, Mark 14, John 12. In fact, if you're taking notes, and I'd encourage you to take notes, if you want to write those references down, they're Matthew 26, verses 6 through 13, Mark 14, verses 3 through 9, John chapter 12, verses 2 through 8. Now, these stories are very similar. And uh, But there are some unique differences, so there's debate as to whether they're the same. I'm not sure if they're the same story. I lean towards they're not the same story, but I will grant you the fact, if, if you lean towards they are the same story, that they're very similar. And, and in both of them, you've got a woman anointing Jesus' feet and washing his feet. And in both of them, you're in the house of a man named Simon. Now, here's the differences, just so you can kind of understand. In the Luke 7 story, we are in the house of a man named Simon the Pharisee. And all the other stories, we are in a house of a man named Simon the leper. Now, usually lepers are not Pharisees, so that's one reason why we think these stories are not the same. Also, you must realize that the name Simon, especially in, in the New Testament, is extremely uh, uh, a popular name, a very well-known and used name, just like Mary. You have multiple Marys in the New Testament. You've got multiple Simons. Um, also, in Luke 7, this woman is a sinner, we're told, or she was known as a sinner. And in the stories in Matthew, Mark, and John, we're told that this is Mary, the sister of Lazarus. So there's reasons to believe why it's the same story. There's reasons to believe that it's not the same story. We're going to just deal with this story as a unique story. We're not going to cross-reference with those stories, although they are very similar. And what I'd like to do uh, this morning is just give you lessons. There are three major characters in this story that we find. We find the Pharisee, we find the woman, and of course we find the Lord Jesus Christ. And there are lessons that we can learn from each one of these individuals. And if, again, if you're writing notes, I'd encourage you to write down some notes. And let's go ahead and just kind of break this story down and give you some thoughts. Number one, we see the lessons from the self-righteous Pharisee. We see this Pharisee, and the theme of this, uh, of this conversation is that this man was a self-righteous man. Notice there, Luke chapter 7 and verse 37, the Bible says this, And behold, a woman. So we are with Jesus. Jesus in the house of Simon the Pharisee, and a woman in the city, and I want you to notice these words, which was a sinner. Now, the idea there is that she was known as a sinner. Obviously, we're all sinners. There is none righteous, no, not one. But this woman was known, she had a reputation that she was a sinner. She was known to be a sinner. When she knew that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment and stood at his feet behind him weeping and began to wash his feet with tears and did wipe them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. And I want you to notice that this man, this Pharisee, we'll see here, is very self righteous Pharisee. In fact, when you read this story, and we're going to compare it to another story, another uh, account in the, in, in the book of Luke in regards to self-righteousness, we see that this guy is a very self-righteous man. He looks down at this woman and he thinks that he is better than her. And let me just say this, this applies a lot and this can apply a lot in churches like our type of churches, because here's what you need to understand. Our churches and our type of churches, our style of churches are very separated churches and they should be. 
The Bible says, come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord. The Bible says, and be not transformed, be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. The Bible says to love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. Uh, he says, if you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. So we teach and preach and believe that as New Testament Christians, as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, hey, we, we ought to be different, we ought to act different, we ought to come out from the world. That's biblical. That's true. That's what the Bible says. But when you teach that, when you teach that, you have to balance that a little bit because what can happen in a church like this where you are taught to live a separated life, where you are taught to live a sanctified life, where you are taught to not look like the world, act like the world, be like the world, where you're taught to come out from among them and be separate, what can happen is that you can develop a self-righteous attitude where now all of a sudden you think you're better than others. You think you're better than those who maybe aren't as separated or sanctified or, or, or uh, uh, you know, uh, disciplined as you are. And I want you to notice that there are two major characteristics that we find in self-righteous people. We see it in the story and we'll see it in Luke chapter 18. The first is this. A self-righteous person will focus on the sins of others and not the Savior. Notice the story again. And behold, a woman in the city, notice what it says, which was a sinner. She was known to be a sinner. She had a reputation to be a sinner. We're not told what she was. We're not told what she did. Uh, but we know this. She lived a lifestyle that was just known that this woman was a sinner. And notice the, the focus of the Pharisee. Verse 39. Now when the Pharisee, which had bidden him, saw it. When he saw what? When he saw this woman weeping at the feet of Jesus, anointing the feet of Jesus, wiping his feet with her hair. It says, now when the Pharisee which had bidden him saw it, he spake within himself, saying, this man, if he were a prophet, would have known, notice what his focus is, who and what manner of woman this is that toucheth him. Notice what he says in his own heart, for she is a sinner. Now I want you to notice that self-righteous people will have their focus on the sins of others and not the Savior. Now there in Luke 7, keep your place, that's our text for this morning. Go to Luke chapter number 18. In Luke 18, we have a very famous story that Jesus gave, a parable, that kind of identifies this same idea that self-righteous people will focus on themselves. And look, I'm not apologizing for living a separated life. I'm not apologizing for preaching separation. I'm not apologizing for preaching sanctification. You cannot walk in the Spirit and fulfill the lust of the flesh. That's the Bible. I'm not apologizing for, for, for teaching and preaching and leading a church that says, hey, you ought to live different, you ought to act different, you ought to be different. The Holy Spirit ought to do a work in your heart that changes you and transforms you. I'm not apologizing for that at all. But let me just say this. In a church like this, you better believe that we've got some immature Christians who have changed some things, usually some exterior things in their life, and all of a sudden they think they've arrived. And all of a sudden they think that they're better. And all of a sudden, their focus is no longer on Jesus. Their focus is only on those who they think they're doing better than. Their focus is only not on sinners. So should our focus be on sinners? If you're preaching the gospel, your focus better be on sinners. But their focus is on the sin of the sinner. Look at Luke 18, verse 9. We find the same idea, the same uh, concept. Luke 18, verse 9. And he spake this parable unto certain, notice what it says, which trusted in themselves. What were they trusting? That they were righteous. Now, here's the thing. Notice. And this guy, in this parable, in the application, this guy's not even saved. We understand that. But notice what it says. He trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And here's what always happens. This is self-righteousness. Here's what always happens when people become self-righteous. You say, Pastor Jimenez, how can I know if I am a self-righteous? righteous member of Verity Baptist Church. Here's how you know. They were righteous and, notice, despised others. See, there's nothing wrong with living a separated life. You ought to live a separated life. But when your separated life causes you to look down on others, when your separated life causes you to despise others, when your separated life causes you to have this attitude where you think you're better than others, now you've stepped into self-righteousness. Notice verse 10. Notice what Jesus says. Two men went up into the temple to pray. The one a Pharisee, which were known for being self-righteous, and the other a publican, which were known for being sinners. Look at verse 11. 
The Pharisees stood and prayed thus with himself. So notice, this guy's praying. He's praying with himself. He's pretending to pray to God, but he's really just talking to himself. He's praying to himself. Notice what he says. The Pharisees stood and prayed thus with himself. Notice where his focus is. I thank thee that I am not. Notice his focus, as other men. He says, I'm not as other men. And here's his focus. His focus is not on Jesus. His focus is on other people. He says, I thank thee that I am not as other men men are. Notice, extortioners, unjust, adulterers. What's he focused on? The sin of others. Or even as, and even looks at this publican. He says, even as this publican, his focus is on men. Verse 12, I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the publican, Notice the focus of the publican. Standing afar off would not lift up so much as his eyes into heaven, but smote his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. See, you say, where should your focus be? Look, your focus ought to be on God, and your focus ought to be on your own sin. Get your sin right. Deal with your own sin. But when your focus becomes, well, look at what they're doing. Look at how she's dressed. Look at where they're going. Look at what they posted on Facebook. Or look at what they... When your focus becomes on despising others to make yourself feel more spiritual or more godly or more like you've arrived, hey, you are a self-righteous person. Notice verse 14. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For every one that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. So notice that self-righteous people focus on the sins of others as opposed to the Savior. Notice secondly, though, if you, if you go back to Luke chapter 7, look at verse 39. Not only do self-righteous people focus on the sins of others, and, and, and some of you are like that. You can't get together with other people without talking crap about other people. The only way you have a good time around other people is if you're gossiping, if you're backbiting, if you're, well, can you believe they said this? Can you believe they said that? Can you believe they did that with their kids? I would never do that. Or you're ultra-spiritual, so let's pray for so-and-so. You know, I, I saw what they posted on Facebook. And, and, and you, can't, you can't just sit around and have a good time with somebody and have a conversation. You can't talk about the good things that are happening in your life, the things that God's doing in your life. You can't sit with your friends and say, hey, let me share with you what God's doing in my life and where God's dealing with me and the things I'm trying. Will you pray with me? No, your focus has to be on the sins, on the mistakes, on the problems or the perceived sins or the perceived mistakes or the perceived problems that you have of others. And here's all I'm telling you. Just mark it down. You're self-righteous. You're self-righteous when... Your focus is on the sins of others. But let me say this. You are self-righteous. And we know this of self-righteous people. Self-righteous people will look down on those of lesser status. Look at verse 39. Luke chapter 7, verse 39. Now when the Pharisees which had bidden him saw it, notice what it says. He spake within himself saying, notice what it says. This man, if he were a prophet, would have known what and, uh, would have known who and what manner of woman this is that toucheth him, for she is a sinner. Here's the thing. He is, he, he's not only looking at her and saying, man, I, you know, I would never, I would never, uh, I, I'm glad that I'm not like her. It's not just enough for him to say, I'm glad I'm not like her. He has to take it a step further and say, I can't believe he's talking to her. I can't believe he's ministering to her. I would never... I would never reach out to her. I would never try to talk to her. I would never try to minister to her. Because this is what self-righteous people do. They look down on those who they perceive as being lesser than, having a lesser status, uh, as they that they perceive as being worse than, as those as, as, uh, that are being outcast. And let me tell you something. If that's your attitude this morning, you're self-righteous. If there's anyone in this church that you look down on and you say, well, can you believe? I can't believe. Look at how they parent. Look at how they act. Look at what they do. Hey, just realize this. You're a self-righteous person. Because look, Jesus liked people who were not like him. And Jesus was liked by people that were not like him. Luke chapter 7, look at verse 33. This is kind of a theme in this chapter. Notice what he says. Luke chapter 7, verse 33, for John the Baptist... This is, this is Jesus talking to these individuals. This is actually the context that kind of leads us into the story. He says, For John the Baptist came neither eating nor uh, eating bread nor drinking wine, and ye say he had the devil. 
He says, John was out in the wilderness living a very separated life. He did not eat bread or drink wine, and you said he hath a devil. Then he says this in verse 34, the son of man, referring to himself, he says, is come eating and drinking, and you say, behold, a glutton man and a white bibber, a friend of publicans and sinners. And here's what Jesus is telling the Pharisees, we can't win with you. If we're out in the wilderness and we're not eating bread, we're not drinking, then you say we've got a devil. If we minister to people and love people and spend time with people, then we, you say we're a glutton, a, a gluttonous man and a white bibber. You say, what's the problem? Here's the problem. You never win with self-righteous people. Look, the problem with self-righteous people is you're never, you're never going to satisfy them. It's never going to be good enough. Here's another characteristic of a self-righteous person. They're always complaining. They're always complaining about something. There's always something that's not being done right. There's always... And look, you want to identify self-righteous people? Let me just give you a hint as to... You say, Pastor, how can I identify self-righteous people at Verity Baptist Church? Here's how you identify them. Look for people that don't reach out to the outcasts. Look for people who hang out in their little clique, and it's just us four and no more. And I don't want to talk to them, and I don't want to invite them, and I've got people over at my house every week, but it's always the same four people, and I'm not going to reach out. When you look at people who don't want to, who want to separate themselves from, who want to uh, outcast certain other people, just realize this, that's a self-righteous person. When you find people who are constantly complaining, there's nothing that can be done at church. Look, I can't change the seats around this place. Well, I can't believe what pastor's doing, pastor. He should have asked me. Well, nobody asked you. <laughs> nobody cares enough of your opinion to ask you. We can't. Look, we can't change anything around here without having certain people complain and whine, and I would have never done it. Well, look, when you're pastoring a church, when you've met the qualifications, then you do it that way. Till then, you just submit to the authority that God has given you. And self-righteous people are always looking down. They're always whining. They're always complaining. They always think, this guy thinks he's, he, he can do ministry better than Jesus. He thought within himself. He spake within himself. This man, if he were a prophet. You know, here's what he's saying. If I was Jesus, if I was the pastor, if I was the pastor's wife, I'd never do Well, you're not the pastor's wife. And you're self-righteous. Well, I would never have that person over. We know because you're self-righteous. Well, I don't like the decision. I know, you're self-righteous. I get it. We get it. We can identify it. This makes you, this is the characteristic of a self-righteous person. You say, well, I don't want to be self-righteous. So what should I do? Here's what you should do. You should love everyone. Amen. You should reach out to everyone. You should try to ha- make friends with everyone. You say, Pastor Jimenez, I want to have people over my house. Great! Why don't you have everybody over your house? You know, I can't have everybody. Okay, well, how, instead of inviting the same four people every week... Why don't you get to know? Well, I don't know. Why don't you walk up to them and shake their hand and ask them their name and tell them you're glad they're here and invite them out to lunch? They're not my type of people. What, sinners? Are you not a sinner? They're not like, or I'm sorry, are you deity? Are you Jesus? Because Jesus didn't have a problem. It's funny how Jesus will have dinner with a Pharisee and he'll have dinner with the publicans. You say, why? Because Jesus wasn't self-righteous. Self-righteous people looked out on those that they think they're better than. Go to James chapter 2. James chapter 2. If you start at the end of the New Testament and, 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 and head backwards, Revelation, Jude, 3rd, 2nd, 1st John, 2nd, 1st Peter, James. Sometimes people complain, it's been a long time since pastors had us over. Well, you know what? We're trying to have everybody in the church over. You know all those people you talk crap about? You know all those people you ignore? You know all those people you don't greet? You know all those people you're constantly say, uh, saying mean things? We're trying to have them over too. We're trying to befriend them too. We're trying to love on them too. Maybe you got to grow spiritually and help us out a little. Instead of just constantly whining, constantly complaining, constantly looking down, constantly giving your opinion as to how it should have been done and why it should have been this way, and I don't think pastor did the right thing, and that person got away with this, and that person did that. It's, nobody asked. Nobody cares. James chapter 2, verse 1, the Bible says this, My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Notice what he says, with respect of persons. You ought not have the faith of Jesus Christ with respect of persons. For if there come unto your assembly a man with a gold ring and goodly apparel, and there come also a poor man in vile raiment, and ye have respect to him that weareth the gay clothing, and say unto him, Sit thou here in a good place, and say to the poor, Stand thou there, and sit here under my footstool. Are ye not then partial in yourselves, and are become the judges of evil thoughts? Hearken, my beloved brethren, 
Hath not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom, which he hath promised to them that love him? You know what? When people walk into this church, we ought to love everybody. We ought to, I'm not, and please understand, I'm not talking about some pedophile reprobate. Okay, you got some pedophile reprobate hanging out in, in the bathroom with little boys. Let's throw, throw that guy out. I'm not talking about some pervert, pedophile. but you, people walk in here and they say, well, they're not like us. They don't dress like us. They don't act like us. They didn't drive the same vehicle. You love them. We are not to have the faith of Christ with respect of person. The Bible tells us we ought to love the Lord our God with all our heart and we ought to love our neighbor as ourselves. You say, well, who should we hate? Those who hate the Lord. The enemies of God. So we have to have this balance. You say, do you love everyone? We love everyone except filthy, perverted reprobates. But look, other than that, we we love them. Jesus brought in the publicans, the sinners, the harlots. He loved them all. So we see this lesson from the self-righteous Pharisee. And the self-righteous Pharisee had a focus on the sin of others. And look, if people get mad because we preach about a a bunch of filthy faggots, let them get mad. We don't need them here. We don't want them here. Hey, I don't want any homo sympathizers in my church. You say, why? Because I don't want anybody who sympathizes with perverts here. Let them leave. Let them go. You say, oh, yeah, yeah, I can't believe you guys preach like this. Look, we love everybody except a bunch of faggot lovers. Amen. And Oliver probably needs to shut down the live stream or something, but, you know, before YouTube shuts us down. We, you know, we love everybody except people who love, look, you say, I can't believe you guys, you, you, you would preach against a pedophile? Really? You're going to walk out of church because we preach against a pedophile? Amen. Seriously? And get out of here. We don't need you here. We don't want you here. You say, oh, I thought you said you love everybody. Yeah, except for people who sympathize with faggots. Except for people who sympathize with pedophiles. Except for people who sympathize with someone who would molest our children. You know what? I love my children more. But other than that, you know, we ought to love everyone. It's a love message. Except for those who would hurt our children. You understand that? This concept in Christianity today, we've got this crazy concept in Christianity where it's like, we got to love everyone. Even someone that would molest your children? Even someone that would follow your children into the restroom and try to defile them? Really? You're crazy. You're insane. You need to get the hell out. You're not hurting us by leaving. We're glad you're gone. You're not offending us. We're offended you even came. We're offended you even show up. You say, Pastor Menes, how do you feel about the L.A. Times doing a news report on you? And they're going to, I hope the L.A. Times scares the hell out of every queer in California and they'll never come here. You say, why? Because, look, we don't want perverts. We don't want pedophiles. You say, how about publicans and sinners? We'll, we'll take them. How about harlots and drug addicts? We'll take them. How about, how about gangbangers and, and, and people that have, uh, came out of prison? We'll take them! Amen. We'll love everyone, but we won't love those who love the Lord. So we see this lesson from self-righteous Pharisees. But number two, I want you to notice there's a lesson from the Savior. A couple lessons from the Savior. Go back to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7, look at verse 40. Luke chapter 7 and verse 40. You say, I don't, I don't know, I don't feel comfortable with that. Well, welcome to New Testament Christianity. Amen. Luke chapter 7, verse 40, notice what the Bible says. We saw the lessons from the self-righteous Pharisee. What was it? The focus is on the sins of others, and they looked out on those who they feel they are better than. But then we see the lessons from the Savior. What are they? Number one, in regards to salvation, there is no difference between people. Luke chapter 7, verse 40. Notice what he says. And Jesus answering said unto him, Simon, I have somewhat to say unto thee. And he saith, Master, say on. And keep in mind, this woman is washing his feet with her hair, weeping, and he's looking down like, I don't know about this. And Jesus says, hey, I have somewhat to say unto thee. He says, say on. Look at verse 41. He said, there was a certain creditor which had two debtors. He said, there was a certain creditor, which had two debtors. And he begins to give him this tale of two debtors. The one owed 500 pence, and the other 50. So he said, they both owed him money. One owed 500. And a pence was what someone would get paid for a day's uh, wages, for a day's labor. One owed 500 pence, the other 50. Notice verse 42. Here's a lesson on salvation. And when they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. 
You say, what's salvation? Salvation is this. You have nothing to pay, and if you're saved, he frankly forgave you. Amen. You say, oh, well, I only have 50 pennies. It doesn't matter how much you owe. It doesn't matter how much of a sinner you were. And again, we're not talking about reprobates. You know, those who have been rejected by God because God rejected where he's given them over to a reprobate mind. But he's saying, look, when it comes to salvation, look, there is no difference between people in regards to salvation. There's no difference between people. You say, I'm a big sinner. Hey, where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. You say, I've got 500 pence worth of sin. You know what? He can forgive you for that. He, he can frankly forgive you both. And understand this. You say, well, I only had 50. I only had 50. Well, you know what? He can frankly forgive you too. The, the idea is this. Look, whether you owe $5 million or $500, if you don't got $500, it might as well be $5 million. This idea is actually found in, in, in the Bible. Go to James chapter 2. James chapter 2. Look at verse 10. Notice what the Bible says. James chapter 2 and verse number 10. Notice what the Bible says. James 2.10 says, For whosoever shall keep the whole law, for whosoever shall keep the whole law, and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. For whosoever shall keep the whole law, and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. Now let me explain something to you. This verse is not teaching that all sin is equal. Because people will try to take this verse and say, Oh, see, this verse teaches all sin is equal. You are insane if you believe that. Like, you need to be committed into an insane asylum. If you think that stealing a, you know, paperclip from your employer and molesting and killing children is just the same thing. The same level. That's insanity. That's craziness. He says, for whosoever should keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he's guilty of all. You say, what is that saying? Here's what they're saying. It's not saying all sin is equal. The Bible never teaches that. In fact, the Bible teaches the exact opposite, that many sins are worse than other sins. The Bible talks about he that hath the greater sin. That's why God puts different levels of punishment on, on different individuals in his civil law and in, even in hell. There's a lower hell for worse people. There's worse hell for worse people. So the Bible doesn't teach this concept that, you know, just all sin is equal. But here's what the Bible does teach, is that all sin will send you to hell. Any sin will send you to hell. For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. So it's not that all sin is equal, but it's this. If you're a sinner, you are condemned to hell. You say, all all I owe is 50. Well, that's enough to send you to hell. I owe 50. It doesn't matter. Here's salvation. They had nothing to pay. He frankly forgave them both. Romans 3.19, you have to turn there. You can go back to Luke chapter 7. Romans 3.19 says this, Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them that are under the law. Notice that every mouth may be stopped and that all the world may become guilty before God. You say, why? For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Look, when it comes to salvation, you're guilty, period. It doesn't matter how good you are. It doesn't matter how religious you are. It doesn't matter how much, you, uh, t- uh, how much you go to church. It doesn't matter how nice you dress. You are guilty. And Jesus teaches this in regards to salvation. Here's what he's telling Simon, the Pharisee. He's looking down at this woman who had a reputation of being a sinner. And he's saying, look, in regards to salvation, there is no difference between people. He said there was a creditor that had two debtors. One had 500, one had 50, and when they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. And, life, and that's the story of your salvation, that's the story of my salvation. See, I, I, what, what's your background? It doesn't matter what your background is. You're a sinner. And you had nothing to pay. And he forgave you both. But I want you to notice, Jesus, he teaches this concept. And people get this idea confused. He says, when it comes to salvation, there's no difference between people. When it comes to salvation, there's no difference between people. It's not that good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell. There is none good. He says, if you're forgiven. He said, you're forgiven, whether it's 50 pence, 500 pence. But then he says this. In regards to service, in regards to service, there is a difference. Notice what he says. Look at Luke 7, 42 again. He says, and when they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. That's salvation. But then he begins to talk about service, because here's what you need to understand. God did not save you to sit. He saved you to serve. He saved you to get busy. He saved you to do something and accomplish something and, uh, and, and, and get something done for God. So notice what he says. He says, tell me, therefore, which of them will love him most? He's talking about two people that got forgiven. One owed 500 pence, one owed 50. He says, tell me, which one will love him most? Simon answered and said, I suppose that he to whom he forgave most. And he said unto him, thou hast rightly 
judged. And Jesus begins to teach this concept. He says, look, when it comes to salvation, there is no difference. Regard, there is no difference in, in, in no matter how bad of a sinner you are or how not bad of a sinner you are, you need to be saved. All sin will condemn you. But then he says this, in regards to service, in regards to serving the Lord, here's what he says, motives matter. Notice he deals with the heart. He says, which will love him most? And let me just say this. Let me say this. This is an important concept to me uh, because, it, it, you know, for, for myself personally, but also for my children. Because this is something that uh, first-generation Christians versus second-generation Christians uh, have, to, have to deal with. Recently, I was in Tucson. I preached a two-part series called First-Generation Christians, Second-Generation Christians. I went through and talked about first-generation Christians. And what that means is people who were not raised in Christianity, they were not raised in a good church or raised, uh, they, they weren't raised in a home where their parents were Christians or saved, but they got saved later on. And there are some battles that first-generation Christians are going to have to fight. And, uh, and, and praise the Lord for it. And then there are those of us who were raised in a Christian home, who were raised in a godly church, who were raised, and we're second generation Christians. And you know what? There are other battles and different types of battles that we're going to have to fight. And one of them is this, that oftentimes you will find that second generation Christians will not live for God, will not sell out for God, will not do a lot for God. And I'm not saying all second generation Christians. I'm a second-generation Christian. You know, Pastor Anders is a second-generation Christian. Right? I'm not saying all second-generation. You know, there's definitely people out there who are serving God. But a lot of times, second-generation Christians will get backslidden, and they won't live for God. You say, why? Because who will love him most? I suppose that he who me forgave most. And Jesus says, thou was rightly judged. And sometimes first-generation Christians have lived a life and lived a lifestyle where maybe they are that 500-pence sinner that needs to be forgiven. And, and, be, and because they know they've been forgiven, because they know there's been a lot there, because they know there's a lot in their past, then they end up loving God and wanting to serve God. But sometimes second-generation Christians, they, they might be more like that 50 you know, and by the way, let me just say this. This is why you don't want to have these testimonies where you're just glorifying sin. Well, let me tell you. I mean, I've, had, I've heard some salvation testimonies. I was like, I, don't even, I shouldn't even be listening to this. God saved me out of a life of prostitution. I'm looking at a 40-year-old man. I'm like, good night. That's a little too much information there. You know, I, we don't need to know that. And, you know, God say, you know, I say, hey, you know what? You say, well, why shouldn't we do it? Well, number one, we shouldn't glorify sin. We ought to make sin exceeding sinful. Amen. But number two, how do you think that makes the second generation Christians feel? When I got saved, I, I wasn't eating my green beans. When I got saved, I wouldn't make my bed. You know what? When it comes to salvation, how much of a sinner you are doesn't matter. The fact that Jesus died for us, that's all that matters. And make sure when you give your testimony, you make a line towards the cross and you put the glory on the Lord Jesus Christ. Because that's all that matters. It doesn't matter if you're 500 pence or 50 pence. But let me say this to you second-generation Christians. Maybe you haven't lived that rough life. Maybe you haven't gone down that road. But let me tell you something. When Jesus forgave you, when Jesus saved you, he saved you out of the same hell that the drug addict was going to go to. He saved you out of the same hell that the gangbanger was going to go to. He saved you out of the same hell that the uh, drug was going to go to. He saved you from the same hell. So make sure that your motives in your heart is right. But notice, Jesus says, tell me therefore, which of them will love him most? He says, I suppose that he to whom he forgave the most. And he said unto him, thou hast rightly judged. And then notice, he, he deals with this idea of motives. And here's the thing, when it comes to serving the Lord, when it comes to serving God, here's what you need to understand. Your actions matter. What you do for Christ will matter. Notice verse 44. And he turned to the woman and said unto Simon, Seest thou this woman? I like how Jesus says that. Because Simon's been focused on this woman the whole time. In fact, that's all he's been focused on. And he says, Seest thou this woman? I entered into thine house, and thou gavest me no water for my feet. But she hath washed my feet with tears, and wiped them with the hairs of her head. Thou gavest me no kiss, but this woman, since the time I came in, hath not ceased to kiss my feet. My head with oil thou didst not anoint, but this woman hath anointed my feet with ointment. Wherefore I say unto thee, 
her sins. Notice, he doesn't justify her sins. He doesn't minimize her sins. He doesn't make excuses. He says, her sins, which are many, here's the focus, are forgiven. For she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, or to whom those think, those who think that little has been forgiven, the same loveth little. And here's the point. Here's the point. Here's what you need to understand. When it comes to service, your actions matter. Go to Revelation chapter 22. Revelation chapter 22. We're not going to take the time to go through 1 Corinthians 3 on the the passage on the judgment seat of Christ. But there is a judgment coming for believers where we will be judged not in regards to salvation, not in regards to our sin, but we'll be judged for the works that we did in our bodies. And here's what you need to understand. The rewards in heaven. God is not a socialist and God is not a communist. The rewards in heaven will be granted based on on the actions that you took, based on the work that you did. And though Jesus says there's no comparison when it comes to salvation, there's no 500 pence, 50 pence, it doesn't matter, you couldn't pay, and frankly, I forgave you both. He says even though there's no comparison when it comes to salvation, he says there is comparison and it does matter in regards to rewards in heaven in regards to service he says she you you gave me no you didn't anoint my my head she she hasn't stopped anointing my feet you didn't give me any water she's washing my feet with her tears you know, you you didn't do this and she's doing this so he's saying look it does matter your actions do matter revelation twenty two twelve says this and behold i come quickly and my reward is with me to give every man notice what it says according to his work shall be. Say, so what are the rewards in heaven going to be based on? They're going to be based on what you actually did. And let me ask you this. Are you actually working for God? And, and let me just say this. I'm not trying to make you feel bad. I'm just trying to help you out. Before you say, yes, I'm serving God. Okay, let me ask this. How? Can you answer that? I'm not asking you to answer that a lot. I'm not asking you to answer it to me. I'm just answering, how exactly are you serving God? What is it exactly that you are doing? You say, well, I showed up to church. Let me explain something to you. Showing up to church, showing up to church is like joining a sports team, and you show up to every practice, but you miss all the games. That's not service. This is where you get trained This is where you get instruction. This is where you get motivated. This is where you get pumped up. This is where where we bring people together to try to uh, mobilize them and motivate them to get them out serving God. So what is it exactly that you are doing? When it comes to your... And here's all I'm trying to tell you. I'm just trying to help you with this. When it comes to your rewards in heaven, when it comes to the judgment seat of Christ, you will be judged based on what you did. And the Bible says that there's some people that are going to be saved as of by fire, meaning there's nothing you did for God. You'll still be saved. You'll still go to heaven. But all your works are going to get burnt up because you're not actually doing anything for God. So when it comes to service, when it comes to service, there is a difference. Your actions matter. But let me just say this. Also, your motives matter. It's not just what you do, but why you do it. It's both. It's not just that you say, well, my heart's in the right place, but you didn't actually do anything. No rewards. You say, well, I did a lot, but your heart wasn't in the right place. No rewards. You've got to have the what and the why both need to be right. What are you doing and why are you doing it? Go to Matthew chapter 6. Let me show it to you. Matthew chapter 6. We'll do this quickly. Matthew chapter 6. First book in the New Testament should be fairly easy to find. Matthew chapter 6 verse 1. Matthew chapter 6, verse 1 says this, Take heed that you do not your alms before men. He says, take heed that you do not your alms before men. And here's what he's saying. Make sure that when you serve, he's not, he's not saying you're not allowed to serve before people. He's saying make sure you're not serving because it's before people. See, here's the motive. The problem is not that they were doing their alms before men. The problem is that they were doing it to be seen of them. Otherwise, ye have no reward of your Father which is in heaven. Therefore, when thou doest thine arms, do not sound a trumpet before thee, as the hypocrites do in the synagogue and in the streets. Notice what it says. That they may have glory of men. Say, why were they doing it? That they might have glory of men. Verily, I say unto you, they have their reward. See, here's what you need to understand. Those who serve to be seen of men, do it to receive praise and recognition. Some people, please understand, some people serve... Christ. Some people serve here at Verity Baptist Church and they do it 
to be seen of men, to receive recognition and to receive appreciation and to receive glory. You say, how do you know when they're doing it for that reason? When they don't get the appreciation, when they don't get the public recognition, when they don't, they whine and complain about it. Let me explain something to you. If you've ever complained about not getting credit, you're doing it for the wrong reason. If you've ever complained about not being publicly appreciated, before you start, why doesn't pastor ever publicly, why don't you ask yourself, why are you doing it? Why are you even serving? Why are you even doing You're just wasting your time. Because here's the news flash, you just forfeited your, your uh, rewards in heaven. Notice what he says. Look at verse 44. And he, uh, excuse me, not 44, verse uh, 3, Matthew 6, 3. But when thou doest thine arms, let not... Good night. Verse 1. That's where I want you. Take heed that ye do not your arms before men to be seen of them. Notice what he says. Otherwise ye have no reward. When you do service for the wrong reason, God says no rewards in heaven. And you say, well, I've got everybody fooled. Everybody thinks I'm so spiritual. Everybody thinks I'm so godly. Everybody thinks I'm so sold out. But here's who you don't have fooled. The Lord Jesus Christ. And at the judgment seat of Christ, he's going to put all your soul winning. He's going to put all your service, all those things you did at church, all those things. They're going to burn up. You're going to say, why? I did so much. And you're going to say, yeah, but it was wrong motives. I'm not going to get a reward. He said, you already got your reward. Notice what he says in the last part of verse 2. They have their reward. When you do things that they may have glory of men, verily I say unto you, they have their reward. That's your reward. Congratulations. Somebody saw you sweeping. Somebody saw you soul winning. Somebody saw you do that activity. Somebody saw you show up to that work day. Good job! Hope it was worth it. Because that's your reward. See, when you do things for the wrong reason, you forfeit you reward. When you do things to be seed of men, when you do things to receive public recognition, when you do things to receive glory, you forfeit your reward. And it's not that, it's not that it's wrong to serve in public. What's wrong is when you serve to be seen in public. And look, this is a dangerous place for pastors because much of what we do is before public. It's to be, it, it, it can be to be seen of men because much of what we do is seen of men. You say, Pastor Jimenez, how do you balance that? Well, here's a, you know, one thing that helps me is that I preach publicly with 202 people here this morning, or I guess 201 now, <laughs> you know, or I preach publicly with 402, but you know what? I preach publicly when there was six people in our house. I preach publicly when there's four people in our house. I preach publicly when uh, there's thousands of views on YouTube, and I, I preach publicly when nobody watches on YouTube. I, you know, and here's the thing. You, you got to ask yourself, why do you do what you do? And look, if next week half the church was gone, if next week 20 people showed up, you say, what would you do, Pastor? I would preach what I've prepared, what the Lord has given me. You say, why? Because I'm not doing it for you. And I love you and I like you and I want you to stick around. But you, but you weren't here when we started. And some of you aren't going to be here when we end. <laughs> this service. No, I'm just kidding. Actions, ma- uh, actions matter, but motives matter. Look at Matthew 6, look at verse 3. And here's what you need to understand. When you serve to be seen of men, when you serve, let me say this, let me back up. Some people serve to be seen of men. When you serve to be seen of men, you forfeit your rewards. But understand this. When you serve, you may be seen of men. That's fine. Just make sure that that's not your motive. Make sure that that's not your motivation. Because God says, hey, I'll reward you publicly. Matthew 6, 3. Look at what he's, uh, verse 4. That thine arms may be in secret, and thy father which seeth in secret himself, notice what he says, shall reward thee openly. You know the Bible says, let another man praise thee and not thine own lips. You know, before you go around telling everybody everything you do and making sure, you say, Pastor, I don't go around telling everybody. I do. Yeah, but you make sure it comes up in conversation. Well, I gotta head out because I'm gonna serve and you're not. <laughs> Sinner. I, I, I better take off because I've got so much. I'm really tired because I've just been doing so much for the Lord. Just realize this you don't have to praise yourself. In fact, God says, if you just let me do it, if you just let me do it, I'd reward thee openly. But he said, if you exalt yourself, you'll be abased. 
And if you humble yourself, you'll be exalted. Look at verse 6. Matthew 6, 6. But thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet, and when thou hast shut thy door, pray to thy Father which is in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. You know, quit worrying about whether the pastor rewards you openly. Quit worrying about letting, making sure you get the public recognition, and just let God deal with it. Let God reward you. Let God acknowledge you. He said, well, I never got the reward. Then let God do it in heaven. But you've got to check. You've got to check. When it comes to service, actions matter. What you do matters. Say, my heart's right, but you did nothing. No rewards. You say, I did much, but your heart wasn't right. Your motives were wrong. No rewards. Your actions matter, and your motives matter more. Go back to, go back to Luke chapter 7. Let me give you the third lesson. We've got to finish up. The first lesson was the lesson on the self-righteous Pharisee. What was it? Self-righteous people focus on the sin of others and not the Savior. Self-righteous people look down on others who they deem to be lesser than themselves. Lesson number two was the lesson from the Savior. What was it? The lessons are these. In regards to salvation, there is no difference. In regards to service, there's a major difference. Lesson number three on the sinful woman. What is it? Here's what we learn from the sinful woman. You're there in Luke chapter 7. Look at verse 37. Luke chapter 7 and verse 37 says this, And behold, a woman in the city, which was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment. I want you to notice this lady's sorrow. Verse 38. And stood at his feet behind him weeping. She stood, number one, she stood at his feet, which is a place of humility. And she didn't even stand before him. She stood behind him, a place of humility stood at his feet behind him weeping and began to wash his feet with tears and did wipe them with the hairs of her head. Everything this woman does was abasing herself and, and, and humbling herself. She stood at his feet. She stood behind him. Standing at somebody's feet is a humbling thing. Standing behind someone is a humbling thing. Washing somebody's feet is a humbling thing. Washing them with your tears and your hair is a humbling thing. You say, what do we learn from this lady? Here's what we learn. Here's what we get. When you truly love, a heart of genuine love always produces sorrow for sin. When you love the Lord, look, it doesn't matter if you're 500 pence guy or 50 pence guy. When you love the Lord, when you love the Lord, you will have sorrow for your sin. When you realize that your sin, what your sin has done to Jesus, what he paid in order to save you, what he did for you, no matter how much your sin is, when you have a genuine love for God, you will sorrow over your sin. You're not just going to minimize it and make excuses. You're not just going to, uh, you know, brag about it and boast about it. This woman's heart was broken for her sin. Why? Because of an attitude that she had, which was a, uh, a being thankful for what Jesus did. But notice, secondly, not only will genuine love always produce sorrow towards sin, but genuine love always produces sacrifice. Look at verse 37. And behold, a woman in the city, which was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus had uh, uh, sat at meat in the Pharisee's house, notice what it says, brought an alabaster box of ointments. This is a very expensive ointment that she brings. And here's all I want you to notice. Whenever you have genuine love, genuine love always produces sacrifice. Love always sacrifices. You say, prove it. For God so loved the world that he gave. Why? Because love always produces sacrifices. So listen, if you're not, look, husbands, if you're not sacrificing for your wife, you don't love her. You know what, you know what love does? Genuine love is sacrifices. Genuine love always produces sorrow. Genuine love always produces sacrifice. Thirdly, genuine love always produces service. Look at verse 38. And stood at his feet behind him, weeping, and began to wash his feet. And here's what's interesting about Jesus, is that Jesus never takes your love for granted. Or he never assumes that you love. Jesus makes statements like this. He says, if you love me, keep my commandments. He says, he, he says, how do I know this woman loves me? Well, look how she's serving me. So look, love is something that must be proven through our actions and through our attitude. The sorrow in her heart proves that she genuinely loved. The sacrifice that she gave proved that she genuinely loved. The service that she gave proved 
that she genuinely loved. And this is what Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 5.14. You have to turn there. But he says this, for the love of Christ constraineth us. So again, it goes back to your motives. Why do you do what you do? Why are you here? Why do you serve? What is it that you're doing? And then look, if you're not doing it out of a genuine love for God, you're wasting your time. Well, what should I do? Should I just quit? No, get your heart right. <laughs> it's funny how I preach stuff like this and people are like, well, I might as well just leave. It's like, no, that's not, look, get, get right with God. How about that option? Amen. Humble yourself before God. Maybe you need to apologize to some people. Maybe you need to seek forgiveness from God. Maybe you need to seek forgiveness from others. Maybe you need to get your heart right. Maybe you need to have a serious conversation looking in the mirror and asking yourself, man, I've been a pretty rotten church member. I've had the wrong motives. I've had the wrong attitude. I've been doing this for the wrong reason. You say, well, should I leave? Well, look, get right or leave. Do us a favor. (laughs) But why don't you just get right with God? Jesus did not tell Simon the Pharisee this because he wanted Simon to get offended. He told Simon the Pharisee this because he wanted Simon to realize that he was wrong. Notice how the story ends, verse 48, 49, and 50. And he said unto her, Thy sins are forgiven. And they that sat at meat with him began to say within themselves, Who is this that forgiveth sins also? And he said to the woman, Thy faith hath saved thee. Go in peace. You say, why is it that Jesus could forgive sin? Here's why. Because Jesus was God. People say, oh, Jesus never uh, claimed to be God in the Bible. People try to say that. And here's the thing. Okay, uh, you know, first of all, there are claims in Scripture to his deity. But even if you believe that, how about this? He forgave sin. And they were right to say, well, who is this that forgiveth sin? Because only God can forgive sin. So, so was Jesus wrong to forgive sin? No, Jesus was God. And by the way, God, God is the only one who truly knows the heart. God is the only one who can truly righteously judge. And God is the only one who can forgive sin. Let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for the Bible. Thank you for the story. Lord, I pray you'd help us to just keep our hearts right and to keep our focus right. And Lord, help us to realize that there is forgiveness But Lord, help us to realize that there's always a balance with these things. We live separated lives, and we ought not be self-righteous. We we live forgiven lives, and we ought to forgive others, but we ought not forgive those who hate the Lord. Help us to make sure our motives are right. Help us to sorrow over our sin, to sacrifice for others, and to serve you. Lord, we thank you for a lighthouse in Sacramento, for a church that's not interested in, in trying to keep people here who don't actually love your word. Thank you that there is a group here who actually likes the Bible, loves the Bible, wants to study the Bible, wants to know what the Bible says even when it's not popular. We love you. In the matchless name of Christ, we pray. (coughs) Amen.